This is Barons and Bond Podcast, episode 66, with just me for right now. This is going to be a three-parter. The first part is I'm going to explain the book I'm going to go over. Second part is I'm going to actually go over the book. And the third part is a little conversation with me and the kids that I did a few days ago. And on this book, I'll start here. In 2015, I was working in North Carolina for a week. It's the first time I ever got to travel to do my work, to go do some color correction just for dailies on some TV show. Flew to North Carolina, had never been there, and it was great. When I arrived, I was on a mission. I was by myself. It was very rare to be away from the family. First thing I did when I landed is I went to Whole Foods. I got all of my groceries for the entire week. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Everything sorted, all planned. So during the whole stay, I wouldn't have to worry about and and spend time going to eat and thinking about that and spending extra money for room service or the hotel bar or whatever. So that was settled. The other reason I did that is because I was really trying to finish a huge book by Tony Tony Robbins called Master the Game. It's a 700-page book. It's huge. And I really wanted to just focus on that. So during that time, it was the first time, okay, I'm going to really focus and do this. I wanted to under begin understanding what money in 401ks and all that was about because I was 100% clueless. So I did finish that book during that time. I would wake up. I would meditate for about 30 minutes. Then I would read until I had to go to work. I would do, go to work, rinse and repeat for that week. It was awesome. I learned a lot. And at the same time, I didn't do anything about what I read. I took no action. I had all this information and I did nothing with it. It was in there, but not. Since then, listening to podcasts, all types of podcasts, you know, on every subject. But, you know, the things come up as far as trying to understand financial advice and compound interest and savings and 401ks and IRAs and it's all too vague and I started to learn more but still not doing anything. Then I have this book sitting in my house for who knows how long in the lineup of books I want to read. Like I still had no idea what it was about and you know the book is called Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. It's not new. It's, I think it's from back in 2004, I believe, which I like reading books that are relevant information now, even though they're older. And, but this book hit me exactly in the right spot to actually make changes, no matter how small, towards financial future, towards other things, paying attention to why I'm making any decisions. This book hit the nail on the head. It just explained it openly and in depth to where I could say, oh, yeah, I've been slipping. Time to make a move. And it's part of what it explains as far as delayed feedback. When you do things for investing for whatever it is, health or other, you don't get that immediate, oh, I ate a salad. I have a huge bicep now. Oh man, I just had a carrot. Do you see my calf muscles? No, it doesn't work like that. So we don't do it usually because you don't get that immediate hitter. Delayed actions usually come from eating right, exercising, saving, investing, sleeping, reading, listening, meditating. All those are awesome, but you don't get a result in 24 hours. But if you eat a big fat cookie probably get that little sugar hitter all right now let's go let's jump into the book and i really wanted a diego to be on this one but i wanted to read way more pages so get prepared and again i didn't want to bore him to tears and to sleep so for all you grown folks let's get into this a nudge as we will use the term is any aspect of the choice architecture that alters people's behavior in a predictable way 
without forbidding any options or significantly, significantly changing their economic incentives. To count as a mere nudge, the intervention must be easy and cheap to avoid. Nudges are not mandates. Putting the fruit at eye level counts as a nudge. Banning junk food does not. So that's the first implication of removing an obstacle instead of shoving you towards something you really want to do that could pay off for you. As we will try to show, it is not only possible to design choice architecture to make people better off. In many cases, it is easy to do so. Gains and losses. People hate losses, and their automatic systems can get pretty emotional about them. Roughly speaking, losing something makes you twice as miserable as gaining the same thing makes you happy. In more technical language, people are loss-averse. How do we know this? Consider a simple experiment. Half the students in a class are given coffee mugs with the insignia of their home university embossed on it. The students who do not get a mug are asked to examine their neighbor's mugs. Then, mug owners are invited to sell their mugs and non-owners are invited to buy them. They do so by answering the question. At each of the following prices, indicate whether you'd be willing to give up your mug or buy a mug. The results show that those with mugs demand roughly twice as much to give up their mugs as others are willing to pay to get one. Thousands of mugs have been used in dozens of replications of this experiment, but the results are nearly always the same. Once I have a mug, I don't want to give it up. But if I don't have one, I don't really feel an urgent need to buy one. What this means is that people do not assign specific values to objects. When they have to give something up, they are hurt more than they are pleased if they get the very same thing. As we will see, loss aversion operates as a kind of cognitive nudge, pressing us to not make changes, even when changes are very much in our interests. Status quo biases. Loss aversion is not the only reason for inertia. For lots of reasons, people have a more general tendency to stick with their current situation. This phenomenon has been dubbed the status quo bias, and it's been demonstrated in numerous situations. Most teachers know that students tend to sit in the same seats in class, even without a seating chart. But status quo bias can occur even when the stakes are much larger, and it can get us into a lot of trouble. The combination of loss aversion with mindless choosing implies that if an option is designated as the default, it will attract a large market share. Default options thus act as powerful nudges. So this dives into a lot of details about how defaults are a huge part of our decision making. And people that craft those defaults that we just go with are generally more people than not. They're thinking if that's going to be good or bad for us. But just keep in mind, you're probably choosing a bunch of defaults just because it's another thing you don't have to think about. And this book is hammering on the fact that maybe you should think about them. All right, chapter three, following the herd. Jumping into a section called priming. Thus far, we have been focusing on people's attention to the thoughts and behaviors of other people. Closely related work shows the power of priming. Priming refers to the somewhat mysterious workings of the automatic system of the brain. Research shows that subtle information, subtle influences can increase the ease with which certain information comes to mind. In surveys, people are often asked whether they're likely to engage in certain behavior. 
to vote, lose weight, purchase certain products. Those who do the surveys want to catalog their behavior, not influence it. But social scientists have discovered an odd fact. When they measure people's intentions, they affect people's conduct. The mere measurement effect, what it's called, refers to the finding that when people are asked what they intend to do, they become more likely to act in accordance with their answers. This can be found in many contexts. If people are asked whether they intend to eat certain foods, to diet, to exercise, their answers to the questions will affect their behavior. In our parlance, the mere measurement effect is a nudge. It can be used by private or public nudgers. For example, if people are asked whether they intend to eat, to consume fatty foods in the next week, they consume less in the way of fatty foods. The nudge provided by asking people what they intend to do can be accentuated by asking them when and how they plan to do it. And it goes on to talk about something called channel factors, which is small influences that uh, facilitate or inhibit behavior. So those are the channels. Often we can do more to facilitate good behavior by removing some, some small obstacle than by trying to shove people in a certain direction. So they did an early experiment here on Yale University. They had a bunch of seniors and they did a education thing, a presentation about, hey, you should go get tetanus shots and because tetanus is horrible and you can get them for free at the health center. And all the parent, the students were like, yeah, what a good lecture. That's great. I'll do it. And then only 3% actually got it. Then they did a f another lecture, the same exact one, but they were given a copy of the campus map with the location of the health center circled. They were asked to look at your, their weekly schedule, make a plan when they would get the shot, look at the map, and also decide the route they would take. With these nudges, 28% of the students showed up and got the shot. Notice that this manipulation was very subtle. The students were all seniors and surely knew where the, knew where the health center was. Yale is not a big campus. And they were not given an actual appointment. But nine times as many students got the shots, illustrating the potential power of channel factors. So if you say, hey, when are you going to do that thing? Uh, or are you going to do that thing? Are you going to go work out? Yes. Oh, okay. When? Uh, tomorrow. How are you? What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to do some kettlebells. All those little things get you towards actually doing it. Instead of a vague, hey, you're going to do that? Sure. Okay, chapter five, choice architecture. This is to get into the, the good stuff. So there was some, uh, skip that part. Okay, Don Norman's wonderful book, The Design of Everyday Things from 1990. He illustrates one of his best, his best examples is the design of the basic four burner stove. Most stoves have the burners in a symmetric arrangement, which is the square pattern, with the controls arranged in a linear fashion below. In this setup, it's easy to get confused about which knob turns on which burner, which controls the front, the back, and many pots and pans have been burned as a result. The other two designs that he illustrated are much better possibilities. Basically, the standard one is the four burners, and then you have the four knobs all the way across the front. That's confusing. His two options was the four burners, but then the knobs match the layout of the burner. So it's also a square on top of the stove. And then another one is there's one lower, then one higher, same level, then down. So you know the order one, two, three, four turns on which burner. So the top two would be closer in. The bottom two would be further out, but it would be 
So it would be down, up, across, then down. Norman's basic lesson is that designers need to keep in mind that the users in their objects are humans who are confronted every day with myriad choices and cues. The goal of this chapter is to develop the same idea for choice architects. If you indirectly influence the choices other people make, you are a choice architect. And since the choices you are influencing are going to be made by humans, you will want your architecture to reflect a good understanding of how humans behave. In particular, you will want to ensure that the automatic system doesn't get all confused. Defaults. Padding the path of least resistance. For reasons we have discussed, many people will take whatever action or whatever option requires the least effort or the path of least resistance. Recall the discussion of inertia, status quo bias, and the yeah, whatever heuristic. All these forces imply that if given a choice, there's a default option, an option that will obtain if the chooser does nothing, then we can expect a large number of people to end up with that option, whether or not it's good for them. Often people have a problem in mapping products into money. For simple choices, of course, such mappings are trivial. If a Snickers bar costs a dollar, you can easily figure out how much it costs to have a Snickers bar every day. But do you know how much it cost, costs you to use your credit card? Among the fees you're paying are A. An annual fee for the privilege of using the cards. B. An interest rate for borrowing the money. C. A fee for making a payment late. And you may end up making more late payments than you anticipate. D. Interest on purchases made during the month that is normally not charged if your balance is paid off, but begins if you make your payment one day late. And E. Charge for buying things in currencies other than dollars. I think we can all relate. Okay, part two of the book. Money, getting toward the nitty-gritty. Not surprisingly, humans differ dramatically from econs, which is like a unemotional person like Spock. So humans differ dramatically from econs and how they deal with money. Econs are sensible spenders and savers. They put money away for a rainy day, for retirement, and they invest that money as if they had MBAs. When they borrow, Econs have no trouble choosing between fixed and variable rate mortgages, and they pay their credit card bills on time every month. If you are an econ, you can skip this book. Unless you want to understand the behavior of your spouse, your kids, and other humans. A major goal of the next four chapters is to explore how people can do a better job at the difficult tasks of saving, investing, and borrowing. We also offer some suggestions about how private and public institutions might nudge people in directions that will make them a bit wealthier and more secure. Six section, save more tomorrow. In 2005, the personal savings rate for Americans was negative for the first time since 1933, the Great Depression. On average, American households spent more than they earned and borrowed more than they saved. Increased borrowing rates were fueled by substantial growth in home loans and credit card debt. For many Americans, savings rate, especially retirement savings, are woefully low, if not zero. Consider, for example, the case of Tony Snow, the former White House press secretary, who resigned at age 52 to return to work. He said his motivation was financial. I ran out of money, he told reporters. The fact that many people are not saving for retirement exacerbates the looming problems facing Social Security. As all politicians know, but few are willing to say, we will eventually have to bite the bullet in order to make Social Security solvent through some 
combination of tax increases or benefit cuts. Americans would be better able to deal with this problem if they were saving more on their own. And indeed, the government has often passed laws designed to encourage personal savings, typically by creating tax-forward accounts such as IRAs, 401ks. Such, such programs are well-intended, but many Americans who are eligible for such plans do not take full advantage of them. That would be me a while ago. Fail. I'm learning. Hey, take it easy. I'm learning over here. Let's... All right. The standard economic theory of saving for retirement is both elegant and simple. People are assumed to calculate how much they're going to earn over the rest of their lifetime, figure out how much they will need when they retire, and then save up just enough to enjoy a comfortable retirement without sacrificing too much while they are still working. As a guideline for how to think sensibly about saving, this theory is excellent. But as an approach to how people actually behave, the theory runs into two serious problems. First, it assumes that people are capable of solving a complicated mathematical problem in order to figure out how much to save. The second problem with the theory is that it assumes that people have enough willpower to implement the relevant plan. For most of their time on Earth, humans did not have to worry much about saving because most people didn't even live long enough to retire. In most societies, those who did make it to old age were cared for by their children. But in the 20th and now 21st century, the combination of rising life expectancies and geographical dispersion of families make it necessary for people to think about providing for their own retirement rather than depending on their kids to take care of them. Both employees and governments began to take steps with this problem. Now, Bismarck's early security program in Germany led the way back in 1889. Okay, defined contribution plans, such as 401k plans in the United States, have many desirable features for modern workers. The plans are completely portable, so a worker can take one from one job to another. They're flexible, so you can adjust your rates, your decisions that reflect your own financial situation and tastes. However, defined contribution plans are not very forgiving. Employees have to get around to joining to figure out how much to save and managing the portfolio over a period of years and then to deciding what to do with the proceeds when we finally actually retire. People can find the whole process frightening and many seem to be making a mess of the task. Are people saving enough? Of course, a key question is whether people are saving enough. Are they? This turns out to be a complex and controversial question. We do not take a strong position on this debate, but consider a few points. It seems clear that the costs of saving too little are greater than the costs of saving too much. There's many ways to deal with saving too much. You can retire earlier, start playing golf and traveling to Europe and spoiling your grandbabies. But coping in the opposite direction is less pleasant. Second, we can say for sure that some people in our society are definitely saving too little, namely those employees who are not participating at all in their retirement plan or are saving a low percentage of their income after having reached their 40s or older. These folks could clearly use a nudge. Man! talking to me that hurts my feelings but i'm glad i'm learning okay enrollment decisions nudging people to join the first step in participating in a plan such as your 401k is to actually enroll hey wow most workers should find joining the plan very attractive contributions are tax deductible accumulations are tax deferred and in many plans the employer matches at least part of the contributions. 
Nevertheless, enrollment rates in such plans are far from 100%. About 30% of employees eligible to join one actually do it. In many cases, the failure to join is simply a blunder. There's some examples, uh, like in the in the UK, there was one where the employer did the entire amount that w- would set them up for their target amount retirement. They would fully pay for it, fully funded, target date taken care of, nothing coming out of their account, and only 51% of the people actually signed up because they had to go and sign up. Ouch. It hurts. It says this is equivalent to not bothering to cash your paycheck every week. Man, we're lazy. All right. This extreme example and another are just the clearest cases in which people's failure to join a plan is foolish beyond a doubt. In many other cases, workers take months or years to join the plan, and it is reasonable assumption that most of these workers are just spacing out or procrastinating rather than making a reasoned decision that they have a better use for their money. How can we nudge these people to join more quickly? All right, first option, making savings automatic. An obvious answer is to change the default rule. As of right now, I believe it's nationally most times, the default is non-enrollment. You have to do a little work to get into your plan. When workers are first eligible to join, right when they get hired, they usually have a form to fill out. Employees who want to join must decide how much to put aside and how much to allocate among the funds offered. Forms can be a headache and many employees just put them aside. An alternative is to adopt automatic enrollment. Here's how it works. When an employee becomes eligible, she receives a form indicating that she will be enrolled in the plan at a certain rate. And unless she actively fills out a form opting out, she's in. Automatic enrollment has proven to be extremely effective in increasing enrollment in the U.S. defined contribution plans. We have a plan that's awesome. It's index fund based, almost no fees. It's in funds that are the lowest rates. And what I loved about it is once I started beginning emails every month, hey, your employer's contributed. And then again, it's like, hey, your employer contributed. Here's, and I was like, hey, I should be doing this. I want to be in that email like, hey, good job. You and them contributed. Way to go. So that was a little email nudge that I, that also helped me get into action. Okay, force choosing and more simplicity. One indication that people need help in picking a rate, savings rate, and don't realize they need help is that most people spend very little time on this important financial decision. One survey found that 58% spent less than one hour determining both their contribution rate and investment decisions. Most people spend more time than that picking a tennis racket, a television set, or a movie on Netflix. And you probably spend more time watching trailers before you even watch that movie combo of that time could be spent otherwise and there's another one called save more tomorrow there's a program that became available where if they say the financial advisor would say hey you're not saving enough you need to save more and everybody says no i want my money give it all to me now and they say okay well we'll do save more tomorrow which means when you get a raise three to four percent of that raise will just begin going towards your savings that way what you make now won't ever change. It'll go. It'll still go up, but you begin actually contributing that way. So, you, yeah, just do it tomorrow. We don't have to do it today. That was actually extremely successful, and it works in any place that allows it. So, um, so going back here, their savings is given an example of somebody that was only saving 4%. They join the Save More Tomorrow, And in just three years, they went from 4% to 14% 
which was way higher than if they did a big bump several years ago. And it happened slowly and incrementally, and now it's habitual, and they kind of set it and forget it. It's a big part of action. It's like take the time, do your research, make an action, and kind of you've got that going. All right. Chapter 7, Naive Investing. Recall from chapter 1 that humans are loss-averse. Roughly speaking, they hate losses as twice as much as they like gains, like we said. With this in mind, consider the behavior of two investors, Vince and Rip. Vince is a stockbroker, and he has constant access to information about the value of all his investments. By habit, at the end of each day, he runs a little program and calculates how much he made or lost that day. Being human, when Vince loses $5,000 in a day, he's miserable. He's about as miserable as he is happy at the end of a day when he gains $10,000. How does Vince feel about investing in stocks? Very nervous. On a daily basis, stocks go down almost as often as they go up. So if you're feeling the pain of losses much more acutely than the pleasure of gains, you will hate investing in stocks. Now compare Vince with his friend and client, Rip, a scion of the old Van Winkle family. In a visit to his doctor, Rip is told that he is about to follow the long-standing tradition and will soon fall asleep for 20 years. The doctor says make sure you have a comfortable bed and suggests Rip call his broker, make sure his asset allocation is where it should be. How, how will Rip feel about investing in stocks? Quiet calm. Over a 20-year period, stocks are almost certain to go up. So Rip calls Vince, tells him to put all his money in stocks, and sleeps like a baby. The lesson from this story of Vince and Rip is that attitudes towards risk depend on the frequency with which investors monitor their portfolios. As Kenny Rogers advises in his famous song, The Gambler, you never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Many investors do not heed this good advice and invest too little of their money in stocks. We believe this qualifies as a mistake because if the investors are shown the evidence on the risks of stocks and bonds over a long period of time, such as 20 years, which is the relevant horizon for many investors, they choose to invest nearly all their money in stocks. Now going back a little bit, so on a portfolio breakdown in that book that I mentioned that I read in North Carolina, Ray Dalio had a chapter and he explained a super simplified breakdown of his all-weather portfolio pie chart for like your average dude just beginning to start out, just allocation. He looks at, he looks at it as risk amount so risk so stocks are riskier than bonds so for all weather for the super long haul portfolio he has actually 75% bonds 25% stocks so he builds his portfolio portfolios based on risk as opposed to just a 50-50 split if you read that book you'll you'll see that all right moving on Back to the book. How risky is it to hold the shares of a single stock rather than a diversified portfolio? According to estimates by the economist Lisa Mulebrock, a dollar in company stock is worth less than half the value of a dollar in a mutual fund or ETF or index fund. In other words, when firms foist company stock onto their employees, it's like paying them 50 cents on the dollar. The upshot is that in general, workers would be much better off with a diversified portfolio than with a single company stock. Hint, if you have more than 10% of your retirement money invested in the company you work for, diversify as quickly as possible. Chapter 8, Credit Markets. Super fun adulting on this one, huh? You know, you dig it. Okay. As we mentioned in chapter six, Americans are now borrowing more than they are saving. And it should not be surprising to learn that human consumers 
are not any more sophisticated about their borrowing than they are about their investing. Consider Homer Simpson's experience when leasing a recreational vehicle called a Canyonero. Here's the Canyonero salesman. Okay, here's how your lease breaks down. This is your down payment. Here's your monthly. And here's your weekly. And that's it, right? Yep. Oh, and after your final monthly payment, there's the routine CBP or crippling balloon payment. Homer. But that's not for a while, right? Right. Sweet. Homer's nativity is less unusual and more revealing than it might seem. Let's examine three important lending markets. Mortgages, student loans, and credit cards to see whether some nudges might help the many Homers among us. So I'm going to pass the mortgage section, which it dives into pretty deep. I'm going to go right to student loans. And this is things that most people already know. So apologies for repeating things that you already know. The cost of going to college has been rising almost as fast as the cost of healthcare. At many private universities, including ours, it costs a student more than $50,000 a year in tuition, room, and board. Scholarships and part-time jobs typically do not cover this cost. So students and their families often turn to student loans to help out. In fact, loans are a common option. About two-thirds of four-year students are in debt when they graduate. Good times. One might wonder why lenders are so eager to get the student loan business that they're willing to engage in practices that, that, that are at least sleazy and possibly illegal. The answer is that the combination of loan, guarantee, and subsidy by the government makes these loans exceptionally profitable so lenders compete hard to get their business. And, oh, the average person, as of right now, as of the 2020, average person has 57 minimum in student loan debt. And nationally, we are at $1.55 trillion in student debt. This goes on to explain ways that could be better about applying our FASAs and uh, national financial aid, the college financial aid, like all the forms are longer than the applications. Um, now skipping forward to credit card section. The Census Bureau reported there are more than 1.4 billion credit cards. This is in 2004. And 164 million cardholders with an average of eight cards per card holder. So I looked up the stats for 2019 and there are now five, five more than 500 million credit card accounts. And there are uh, more than 182 million card holders. And currently, the, currently in 2004, 115 million Americans carried month-to-month -month credit card debt. In 1989, the average American family owed its credit card companies 2,700. And by 2007, that number had grown to about 8,000. And these figures are probably too low because they're self-reported. But using Federal Reserve data, some researchers suggest that American households may have an average credit card debt of at least 12000 At typical interest rates of 18% a year, this translates into more than 2000 in interest payments alone. Ouch. That is the end of the notes I have for the book. That's I've only reached about two-thirds of the way through. You swoop up this book and read it if you want to get into all the suggestions on how, how, it, could, how it could take these choice, choice architects and build better ways for us to make better decisions. What I took away from it, like I said, is the biggest thing is actually action. Actually finally doing something after years. This was the book that pushed me and nudged me there. It also goes into saying that more choices makes things more confusing. If you're going to be creating choices for people or whatever you're designing, less is more. And giving people 
options of control without saying you must do this just say hey are are you going to do this here's a few here's a few choices that'll get action better and also as i thought about this book i was thinking of of on the thought of investing i like personally investing in many areas of my life not just finances as you know i love investing in my health in my relationships with my friends in my kids education choosing the school they go to with reason and purpose and understanding why i'm doing that and also in my family making time for them to listen and talk to my wife and kids without a phone or the tv on being available including them in whatever i'm doing you know as stressful as that can be sometimes i'd rather them be there than not and these are the dividends and returns that i care most about all of these can grow slowly and all you and you can you can only contribute to them slowly they don't work any other way and then on that front as far as investing in yourself too i was you ever looked at a a recent photo we take billions and trillions of photos every single day and all of them seem like they're recent they're right now you just took it take a moment this is stepping aside further from the book this is just separate thing look at a recent photo any photo that you think is cool that is very recent for me there's a photo of Diego hugging the dogs before school i have a polaroid Ophia giving me the do sign that I keep on my desk. Okay, if you now stare at whatever photo it is and imagine you're looking at it 25 years from now. Really sink into your future self. Reminiscing about this experience years ago as you stare at the photo and what it was like to live it how much do you want to go back and appreciate it appreciate living or being in that moment are you wanting to change something feel something again teleport back in time to be there again you're there boom right now you have time to act like you wish you would have while you can and you know when I look at those photos, he'll be grown, she'll be grown one day and they'll most likely not remember being in that photo. But I will. I'll remember being there because I'm here right now. So with that, we're going to jump to the conversation with the kids and be healthy, y'all. Hi, kids. Hey, what? Hi. How you doing? Good. Good. Did you have a good morning? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. was Fortnite last night? You built a fort? Hello, you both built a oh, fort? Oh, yeah. You slept oh, yeah. in a fort? Yeah. You yeah. watched a movie in a fort? Yeah. How did you come up with the plan to build it? I don't know. I don't know. I saw some printouts and some blueprints. Did you no. use them? No. No. They were they were terrible. Why? No, they were good designs, but they're small. We couldn't. No, no, they weren't small. We couldn't use them. Why not? We because we tried. We tried. Some of them we didn't want to do. And and one we did the fortress with the pillows, and it was hard. Why? It keeps falling on our faces. Was it? Did you need more clips? No, remember, no. remember when we tried building the fortress? Like it's on the, when we printed out the fort layouts, and then we tried the fortress. Which one is the fortress? Does it uh, look we more like a teepee? The, we whipped off the couch part and made like a little house. Ah, right. So you're gonna use the couch as part we of it. We didn't, but you did. It bec- no, because it. Yes. It okay, but fell. you did go with Careful the four. The you went with the four chair design. I saw. Mm, we always do that. The four chair structure. It's strong, 
right? We always do that, and it's made up. Do you like the dog sleeping in there? Yes. 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 Do you think we should put a leash on Dashi next time so yes. she doesn't go crazy? Yes. I was having the best dream, and then she stepped on my face, and <laughs> sniffing on my face, and I didn't like it. She stepped on your face. Did she lick your face? No. Good. <laughs> How about Nike? How did he do? No, he did good. Did you take him out in the morning? Because nope. they were missing. I did no dog walk today. It has been so many days of dog walks. It kind of felt nice to skip once. Uh, but I'll get back on it tomorrow. Daddy, I think this is a stuffed animal. That is a stuffed animal. Look. Yes, yeah, stuffed animals can have plastic pieces. Like, like eyes. Hands, fingers. No. Nails. No, like buttons. this. This black piece. I don't know. Don't break it, though. That's it. He's supposed to grab a pencil with that little koala. No, your finger. No, no, no. It's supposed to grab your finger, not a pencil. It's your finger? I thought it was a pencil. No, it's your time. finger. Oh, so put it on your finger. The people that's um, listening to this can't see it. Well, you have to describe it. Um... Describe what you're holding. I'm I'm describing what I'm holding. Which is? Which is? A. A. Koala. Koala. Finger puppet. Finger puppet. Yeah. Good yeah. job describing that. Good job describing that. Cool. Cool. Alright, so tell me about this wooden gun plan. Yeah. What am I supposed to do with this? So, yeah. First we're going to... See if Josh has that thing that makes things circle. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're going to do that. And then we're going to shave the middle part. So it's going to be like a skinny little pole that holds the suppressor attachment and the gun together. It's going to be a skinny little pole. But when you first shave it, it's going to be like a circle from like the suppressor attachment. Mm-hmm. It gets smaller than it's the pole. So then we're going to f- try and like shave it to flatten it out so then it's just pull and not like this then pull should we add metal to it it depends i don't know and then uh we'll get like a toy or like an arch thingy and then put a big piece of clear tape like packaging clear tape Mm -hmm. that big put it on it and then i'll get a red expo and do a little dot and it looks like a scoop and then for the magazine, we'll shave it so that it looks like a rectangle. Yeah, I think I can do that with my skill saw. And then, uh, and then get a trigger from something. If we had and a teeny, bingo, if we had a got, tiny bandsaw, we could make it extra straight. So I'm just gonna have to eyeball it. I'm like, eh, make it straight. So you're gonna turn this wooden stick into a gun. Careful cuts, design. Careful, Sophia. Sophia. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys: you completed. Your first week back in school since March. So, Sophia, sit up so you can tell me about your first week of school. Back. It was good. Why was it good? Stay sitting up. It was yes. fun. Be careful because you're moving a lot. Of- Why was yeah. it fun? Hey. Hello. Um, Look into the microphone. You talk into the microphone, Sophia. No. Recess. That's it. Sewing. What knots did you learn? I have no idea. I didn't learn any knots. You want me to remind you? Yes, please. One of them vanishes, doesn't have another the name. The disappearing knot. And what's the other one called? The disappearing knot. The finger what? The finger knitting. Finger knitting. Finger it's chain. Gone. It's a finger knitting, not a finger chain. It kind of looked like a finger necklace. It's not supposed to be a necklace. It's supposed to be a chain. Do you like sitting outside for class? No, I would rather like it inside. Huh? <laughs> I would rather like it inside. Why? It's such good. I mean, there was a couple cold days, but then you had a couple yeah. warm days. Yeah, the coldness. What about the warm days? Wasn't that oh, awesome? That to be was outside? way too hot. You're, don't do that. You're saying it's too hot and too cold? Come yes, on. I need it to make sure it's perfect. 
perfect. Well, I bet. Get it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so then, what's perfect? Perfect would weather be, would be what? Hotter or colder? Hot and cold mixed together. A little chilly, but not hot. Oh. Like shorts with a hoodie, no, or shorts with pants with a t-shirt, t-shirt and shorts. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. <laughs> so you want it to be hot? No, I want it to be chilly. So pants with a hoodie. No, t-shirt and shorts with chilly. That's what hot. What about shorts, t-shirt, and a thin <laughs> hoodie? No, t-shirt and shorts for that's chilly. hot. Sandals or shoes and socks. Are nothing. Bare feet. T-shirt, shorts, bare feet. Headband. I'm gonna lay down. Yeah, it's gonna be right there. Uh huh. Careful when you're moving around, so you. Why are you laying down? This is my desk. This is not. This is not how this is supposed to work. You can't lay (laughs) on the desk. well, don't You're lay supposed down. to sit on the desk, not lay down like it's your bed. <laughs> really? Really? You know, she's not supposed to be sitting well, on my well, desk. You, well, it's okay. The plan was to sit on it. <laughs> Do this. We we talk for a little bit, and we're gonna go get delicious ah frozen yogurt, right? <laughs> was that the exchange here? That's the deal, the plan, the mission, the objective. Why are you guys looking at me crazy? <laughs> Why am I getting weird faces from you guys? Are you guys falling asleep? You are asleep. Oh my gosh. Okay, then we're just going to do math problems. Maybe we should do math homework the rest of the day. What do you think? I can print out no! math. Oh, extra math. You have ma- extra math. We can do... Yeah, we can do... I don't know, like six hours of math. We can do four hours of reading. No. Maybe, maybe we should research Roman history for maybe 10 hours today. What do you think? That's like the entire day. Nah, nah. It'll, it'll still be early. It'll be 12 right before midnight. We'll finish. 12 is midnight. I'm supposed to go to my friend house. My friend when? house. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot. Actually, I didn't forget. That's why we're getting frozen yogurt. Okay. All right. Well, good okay, podcast. Well, hey, Adios. Bye, podcast. Oh, so good. This was great. Um, go ahead and push the space bar button after you hop down. Um. Okay. Um, let me just end this. This Push it. Okay. Go. Any second now. Push it. The space bar. You know what space bar is. Oh. I think I'm at this space bar. Yeah, no. <laughs>